And let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 19 today. Matthew 21, 12 through 19. Um, we'll finish this chapter next week with three different parables kind of going at the same point as we continue our study of Matthew. 21, verses 12 through 19 is where we're going to be today. I, um, so I have, I have the sports that I like to watch. Basketball is not one of them. Um, some people resonate. I watched not a single match, not a single match in March Madness, men or women. And even with me not watching a single match in the men's or women's tournaments, games, whatever. I'm a tennis player for crying out loud. All right, yeah. Without even me watching a single game, Kevin. Um, you know, if, now, theologically, you're allowed to correct me in the middle of a sermon, but I mean, come on. Man. You're, you actually, that was for me. I, I, I receive your criticism. That, you were looking out for me in my, yes, I won't say it out loud, but yes, you were looking out for me. Okay. So even in my, obtuseness of, of March Madness mag games. Um, I heard about Caitlin Clark. Caitlin Clark. Did anybody else hear this name over and over? Is the greatest women's basketball player right now in, in NCAA women's basketball. She, I mean, she was all over the news for her contribution to the women's basketball tournament. And in fact, that, I mean, first of all, we don't really pay attention a lot to women's basketball in general, more so during the tournament. Tournament? And, and, and I didn't pay attention to either, right? And, I'm, and I got inundated just in my taking in of, the, of sports news with this, with this person named Caitlin Clark. Like, even when I go into the gym in the morning at the YMCA, there are three televisions. One has got some religious broadcasting on it, which I won't talk about out loud. And then the, and the other one has ESPN. It's like two different people in the, in the room, you know, in the gym. And Caitlin Clark was all over for several days, different highlights. So I finally went to YouTube and I typed in Caitlin Clark highlights. And the first thing that popped up was a highlight reel, 13 minutes long, of all of her amazing plays during the tournament, okay, for, for March she scored 40 points for many games. I mean, she is an incredible defensive player. She's an incredible, she had so many amazing assists. She can handle the ball like you wouldn't believe. And yes, she scored a ton of points. She was a strategist on the court. Like, she really is the total package of women's basketball. I would encourage you to go. I hate basketball. I would encourage you, if you want to be blown away at somebody's skill set, at the peak of their game for college, women's college basketball games, then you should. You should definitely check it out, okay? I bring that up because we're, we're coming to the point, we're in the point of the Gospel of Matthew where it's basically tournament time, okay? This is where everything in Matthew has been leading up to this, this moment. Well, not to this moment, this, this, seg, these, this week, okay? Uh, where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and things are getting very intense. Everything seems to count. Everything seems to matter, okay? So it's Passover week, and Jesus, after three years of ministry, has come into the city of Jerusalem. So all the big players are there. The Pharisees are there. The Sadducees are there. 
the other rabbis from, and, and Pharisees from outside of Jerusalem are there. Pilgrims, Jews from all over Jerusalem, from around and surrounding areas of Jerusalem are coming into Jerusalem for Passover there. Everybody's there. It is tournament time. Okay? And all eyes, as we've seen from the triumphal entry, are on this man called Jesus. That they've heard about or maybe even seen. If they've been a pilgrim, they've seen him in Galilee and all the surrounding areas, performing all of his ministries and doing all of his teaching. And, and some of the Pharisees and the other Jews in Jerusalem have either seen or heard about his raising of Lazarus outside in Bethany. It's all eyes are on Jesus. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is going to rise to the occasion. He's the total package. And by that, I don't just mean he's got all the great teaching and knows how to respond more than just a teacher. I want you to see that he is king, priest, and prophet. King, priest, and prophet. Look at verses 12 through 13. This passage today, 12 through 19, and to talk, we're, we're going to get to the priest and the prophet part. Because we've already seen the king, but look at verses 12 through 13. I'm going to tile this together. Jesus went into the temple, and he threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. So here's the, here's the scenario. Jesus and the disciples walk through one of the main entrances into the temple. Now, the, a temple is not just a, a building, right? So think of it as like if this were the, the temple and you walked in, you'd walk in through the source, but then you'd be in this huge open through, through the entrance of the temple into this court called the Court of Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews. They are welcome here. They are encouraged to come in here. They can't go any further in. They're not allowed to go any further. But this area is gigantic in Herod's temple that he's built for the Jews. And so Jesus and the disciples have walked in here into this huge light plaza. And there are, uh, of course, there are some Gentiles there. And the reason they are invited there is they're invited there to come and learn. They're invited to come and inquire. They're invited to come and engage with what it means to worship the one true God. They're invited to come in and practice spiritual things, to pray and to study so that they may convert and be Jews. That's why the court of Gentiles is there. They can't go where the Jews can go yet until they become Jews. But they're welcome out here in the court of Gentiles. Unfortunately, that kind of stuff isn't really going on anymore because of uh, what you see in verses 12 through 13 tells that's designed for prayer, designed for inquiry, designed for study, designed for fellowship, designed for community, designed for evangelism. They've, they've taken over the space of the court of Gentiles and have set up shop for the pilgrims coming in to worship in the Passover who need sacrificial animals and who need to exchange their foreign currency that has an emblem of a pagan on it for acceptable typical currency that has no idol on it whatsoever. Okay. So they've set up shop there. So the general vibe of the place is a religious marketplace. It's religious. You've stepped into a temple. There are these symbols everywhere. And yet the prayer, the inquiry, the study, the evangelism, none of that's going on. What's going on is a marketplace. Okay? So that's generally 
the vibe. And because it's a closed market, the thing that's going on in there is, is it's really shady. So the, the prices for the doves are pretty high, right? Simple acceptable coins are pretty absurd. There's a lot of money being made, okay? So you know how it is when you, when you go to um, like a closed market, like a theme park or a resort, and you face abnormally high prices there for things that you'd normally get much cheaper somewhere else, like the grocery store or even just the Starbucks down your road. Um, and the reason they can have those really high prices is because they know that you're a captive audience, right? And they're providing a service, right? That's the way. It's super convenient, so there's a premium on that. You know, that's kind of the, that's when, but, but, and you, you know that that's going to happen. Like, you step into that knowing, so it's on you, entirely on you. But, th- but sometimes you have these experiences where they cross the line, and it leaves a really bitter taste in your mouth for that. Okay, this, this happened to me a long, six, seven years ago. I took the kids to meet my parents who paid for a glorious vacation down in Florida because I'm a minister and, and I worked at, at a publishing house nonprofit. It was just awesome that my parents did this for us. So we uh, drove a really nice resort at Universal Studios called Portofino. Okay? Portofino is like an Italian city built on the water. Like it's kind of makes you feel like you're in Venice kind of thing. A very fake, sterilized American version of Venice. But you understand, right? So one day I'm like, it's up early in the morning. It's kind of like the you know, only time that you're not have somebody hanging all over you. And so and I need caffeine always. So, um, so, so I go into the Starbucks, the licensed Starbucks in the Portofino. And I know that I'm going to be paying 5 or $6 for a cup of coffee. But what I don't expect is to be charged $6 for a cup of water. So I said, I said, I want to call. Like, I know I'm not just going to get water. She's not just going to give me that, right? i got to order something. I understand that. I, that I understood. I knew I was getting into that. So I said, I would like a cup of co- hot, large coffee and a cup of ice water, please. And she said, well, sir, the water is the same price as a drink. And I said, well, I don't want one of your cups if that's the protection that you're, you know, that the thing that you're protecting is like the 30 cents of your branded cup or whatever, your fancy resort, blah, 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 nice plastic. I said, I'm not worried about that. I just want like a, just one of those little six ounces thing. I can go refill it at the dispenser, you know, just that. I just don't have any cup on me. She's like, sir, I don't have any other cups and water is the same price as a drink. That will be $12 if you want it. And I said, well, you do understand. You do not argue with me about this kind of stuff. Like I'm the last person she needs to be speaking to about this. So very nicely, just like Jesus would do, I said to her, You do understand that by doing that, you're effectively devaluing your coffee to nothing because water is worth nothing. You're right. It's worth everything to me in this moment. I'm dehydrated. But it has no monetary value. Right. And she said, and she did not disagree with me because I was right. Okay. But I'm not her boss. And she said, sir, if you want water, it's going to be $6. I said, just give me the coffee. You know. And, again, and, she, and so she... she she, she gave me the coffee. It crossed a lot. Do you think I'm ever going to go back to the Portofino? No way. That's 20 cents in that cup of that water, and he's want, they're wanting to charge me $6. That's, it's not just use, really. What is that? That's just pure profit-taking at the expense of the very people you're... I could go on. Anyway, it crossed the line. I could go on. That's what's happening in the, in the temple. That's what's happening where you go see God, okay? 
It, it, this was a marketplace for sacrificial animals and currency exchange. Only in this case, people are obligated or required to come back on a regular basis. It's not a resort. It's the dwelling place of God. So you can imagine how the Jewish pilgrims would feel about God when they came to do what He was commanding them to do in the law, and this is what the religious leaders are doing to them, taking advantage of the situation. And you can imagine if you're a Gentile who's gotten up the nerve <laughs> to step in. It's like coming, just like driving through our neighborhood and going, I wonder what that church is like with that really narrow driveway that meets in the barn out back. And you get up the nerve as a non-Christian to drive down that driveway and come in here. Right? And then when they get in there, what they see is not religion, but materialism. Or, or even worse, extreme capitalism. Okay? They come for God, and what they get is malice, and what they get is greed. So from a Gentile perspective, and that's going on, how are the people of the one true God any different than those who worship Caesar? Or pick your Greek God or Roman God, okay? So right here in this context is what Jesus is acting against. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem on a donkey as a humble king and a gentle king. And now he's entering the temple as a priest a purifying priest, okay? The temple leadership, either through indifference or laziness, have allowed this to happen, or intentionally they've created it out of malice and greed, this market-driven ministry that creates a culture of bitterness and resentfulness in the temple where God dwells. The one place that God has set aside for Gentiles to worship the one true God is now operating against its very design, either out of indifference or intentionality. We're not really sure which. Either way, they are culpable. And Jesus is taking this very, very seriously. Okay? So much so that he's just gone, oh, you think you're going to sell some doves here? Boom! Throws to the table, right? Throws the money, scatters it everywhere. Ruins the whole business. And then he explains himself. Look again at verse 13. It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Underline the metaphor at the end of verse 13. Highlight it with your thumb. I'll give you just a second to figure that out. Den of thieves. We need, to, we need to double down on that. What is, a, what is a den in this context? Den is a living room like where I grew up where there's a fireplace and a television and a father and a comfortable chair. Okay? That's not den in this regard. Right? Den is a hideout. Okay? Den is a refuge. Thieves or robbers use dens or hideouts to assess the status of the wealth they have accumulated and to plan more ways of accumulating that said wealth. And the temple leaders are treating the temple like robbers or thieves treat their dens. It has become the place where they ponder how to accumulate wealth, power, and influence at the hands of the people they are meant to serve to see God. See what's going on? 
the chief, as far as Jesus is concerned, these temple leaders are, have, they run a den of thieves. They run a den of thieves. So Jesus took this very seriously. And I want you to notice something about just how serious of a charge this, this is. The word thieves here is not the word you use for somebody who at nine years old, seven or eight years old may or may not have uh, ridden down to the double quick and bought a pack of gum for 25 cents, but also put another one in his pocket and stole it for 25 cents somewhere in rural Mississippi. I'm not saying that happened, I'm not saying it didn't happen. Okay. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not what the word, it's not talking about somebody who takes something and then uses it. Okay, like, like a, like Les Mis, I stole a loaf of bread, you're a thief. No, 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 that's not what this is. That's not, it's not the word for a common thief, okay? The word here is insurrectionist. The word here is revolutionary, in quotes. This is someone who's stealing for power. It's someone who is stealing for authority, it's the same word that is assigned to Barabbas. Barabbas wasn't a petty thief. He was more like the political messiah that the Jews wanted. He was a thief for power, a thief for authority. He wasn't insurrectionist. He was it's the same word to describe the two thieves nailed on a cross next to Jesus on either side. These men weren't hung. They weren't crucified, hung on two pieces of wood. They weren't crucified because they stole money somewhere and got caught. They were revolutionaries. They were potential kings. They were insurrectionists, just like Jesus in the eyes of the Romans. Okay? So it's the same concept. So now do you see what's going on here? Jesus has come in and he's cleansed the temple with his authority because he views the current priests and temple leaders as insurrectionists to his temple. They are terrorist takeovers of what belongs to Jesus, what belongs to the Father. The insurrectionists are robbing the Gentiles of knowing and worshiping God, and they are robbing God of the worship He is due through the sacrificial system. It's not just theft, it's mutiny. Okay? It's a coup. Okay? It's the heart of God to be known and to be loved. He wants to be known. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be loved. And His church is the place where he can be known and be loved. The church is not a place for leadership to grab power and wealth. It's the place... This is not what we do here. Kevin and Ken and Wes and I are the other leaders of the church. We're not doing this because we have an ego. We can't do this because we have an ego and we have power and authority that we want to claim and use. It's not a reason the church exists. We exist to help people in this community to know and be known by and love God. Okay? And Jesus takes this very seriously. So he's the ultimate priest, and he comes, into his, he comes in and he cleanses the temple. That's not all he's going to do. Look at verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him, 
in the temple, in the court of Gentiles, and he healed them. So just like Gentiles, blind people, lame people, people with these kind of infirmities or, or um, th- things that inhibit them or somehow make them unclean in the sight of the law, they're restricted from full access to the temple activities. They can come into the court of Gentiles, but that's it. Okay? They could not go into the temple and, and worship God if they had blindness or they were lame or had some other kind of illness or abnormality. Now, if you grew up Jewish, this makes sense, right? It's consistent, okay? Because if you, you have to, the, the, the reasoning was you have to keep these kinds of people out. Oh, this is incredible. You're not going to believe what Jesus does here in just a moment. You have to keep the, <clears throat> you have to keep these people out because keeping them out symbolized the kind of where he dwelt. He's holy. These people are certainly not. Their blindness, their lameness is certainly associated with some sort of sin. So we're gotta, we cannot let them go into worship with God. Straight out of Leviticus 21. So the blind and lame people were not, they're there to worship God, but this is as close as they can get. Okay? So what does Jesus do? He's, he's, oh, he's the priest. What does he do? He doesn't say, hey, you guys don't sweat it. Go on back there. Go on into the temple. Just tell him Jesus sent you. It's cool. He doesn't do that. Jesus is not indifferent to the law. Jesus is not indifferent to expressions of holiness. What does Jesus do? He makes them. He makes them actually to be able to be accepted by God, according to the Jewish law. He heals them. They're not blind anymore. Get in there. You're not able to be accepted to God according to God's terms in Leviticus 21. Jesus uses his priestly authority as the one true priest to create purity in those who desire to worship God. And in doing so, He shows that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament requirements that the temple practices required. He makes you, he makes you right. Don't, y'all don't miss this. In the cleansing of the temple and in the cleansing of the blind and the lame, Jesus uses his authority as a king and as a priest to make us acceptable to God. You know what gets in the way of that? Religiosity and tradition. Power-hungry leaders had made all of that, put all that together, made God virtually inaccessible. And even if you did figure it out, you had this really bad taste in your mouth. But Jesus comes in, it cleanses out the insurrectionists, cleanses out all the corruption, and he heals people and makes them right. And so God can be known and God can be loved. He had one foot in the temple and this went down. Which is no wonder... What happened next? Look at verse 15 and 16. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children who saw it started shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, rescue us, Messiah. The fair chief priests and the scribes were indignant, and they said to Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, Yes. Have you ever read Psalm 8? 
You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. So there, there are two responses to Jesus cleansing out the temple. There are two responses to Jesus healing blind people and lame people in public, in the court of Gentiles. One of them is worship by children who see these wonders and they instantly understand the implications about who Jesus is. And the other is unbelief from very religious people who have all kinds of power and authority and they are not pleased that Jesus has pronounced judgment on them or that he has cleansed the temple. They're not pleased that Jesus has healed blind and lame people and made them accessible to God. They're not pleased. They're not pleased that God is getting praise from children because of Jesus' work. They are the original church curmudgeons. They are not pleased that Jesus is okay with the label of Messiah that the children are giving him, even as they worship God. And the reason they're not okay with it is because they don't believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, and he's proven who he is right in front of them. And the reason they don't want to believe it is because it takes what they love the most, which is the power and the authority. So if you're walking through all this, or even if you've got to live out these experiences... And this kind of help, like you're not quite there with me yet, then I would like for you to consider the, the, the object lesson. Weston, this is an art lesson. In verses 17 through 19, it's a word picture. You have to stand back and look at it and go, hmm, I wonder what, wonder what Jesus meant here. This is, your, this is your passage. Then he left them and went out to the city to Bethany to spend the night there. Can't you just, I just want to say, hey, Lazarus, how you feeling? You know? Like, so what is it like when you die? Tell me. This is, you know, Lazarus is giving Jesus. I, this is what I like to picture in my mind. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, Jesus was hungry. He was a breakfast guy. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once, the fig tree withered. Right? It's kind of weird, right? So I, I really want you to think about this passage as a painting. Okay? Or as a parable. It's, it's a piece of... It's, it's an artistic... It's, what, it's real. It happened. But, I, but the meaning is not explicitly stated for us. You have to do it within the context of all the things that are going on. So you walk up to, if you're, during the Passover, if you saw a fig tree with leaves on it, a sucker's got to have fruit on it. It's got to be an early fig, a good one, nice and sweet. So Jesus goes up to it with that expectation, right? But in this particular scenario, the tree only looks like it has fruit on it. Okay? It gives the appearance of having fruit. When you get up close to it, you realize, huh, just leaves. It's just leaves. And upon learning this, Jesus cursed the tree. Right? Now, Jesus did not do this because it was his only option for breakfast and he lost his temper. Okay? Like me at the Portofino. Okay? To tie it all together. Okay? He did not, this was not the straw that broke the camel's back at seven in the morning, Jewish time. Okay. This was an object lesson 
for the disciples. It was a word picture for what had just taken place the day before in the temple. So the fig tree that looks like it has fruit on it but doesn't, that is Israel's spiritual condition, is it not? There's all the bells and whistles and all the, the religious things going on, the festivals, and, da, 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 and yet there's nothing but unbelief and corruption. So there's the presentation of fruit. But when you get up close, even just as close as the court of the Gentiles, there's no fruit. And so Jesus curses the tree. So there's your, there's your metaphor. Okay. Three conclusions. So Jesus is king, and he's priest, and now he's prophetically given a, a curse. He's spoken a word of judgment over Israel's religious leadership. He has questions. Number one, do you believe in this Jesus? Okay. Starting with the triumphal entry, ending with the word of judgment, Jesus is the total package. He is Israel's true king. He is Israel's true priest. He is Israel's true prophet. He has come to give his people victory, not like a Barabbas, not like one of the other thieves on the cross, not like one of these religious leaders would do, not a political entity, not a nationalist um, a king, if you will, but he's come to reign over sin and reign over his people forever. He's come to make us right with God so that we can worship him. He's come to speak the truth so that we'll repent and believe and worship God. He is prophet, he is priest, and the king. Is this the Jesus you are believing? It's the one I invite you to. He's the one who makes it possible for you to know and worship God. He's the mediator. I invite you to him. Do you believe in Jesus' church? What was true for the temple leadership in Jesus' day is true for our church today. It's the heart of God to be known and to be loved and his church is the place where he's supposed to be known and to be loved. The church is not a place for leadership to grab wealth or power or something else that's important to us. We need to pray. We need to be aware of any of that going on. Murfreesboro needs a whole lot of churches. So we need to pray and work that other churches believe and do this too, not just us. Number three, do you believe in the power of God to achieve the will of God? I get this from the random verses of verses 20 and 22. Because the disciples saw this object lesson, and it just went right over their head. They were more like, did you just see what Jesus did? This tree is, it's dead. I mean, it had potential for fruit, Jesus. It even had potential for like, they just look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So you, you probably read this passage a hundred times like I have. And you go, well, I'm 48 and I think we've got it figured out. Okay. The point here is not your amount of faith to do great things. The reason I can't say to that mountain, get up and go into the sea, is because my faith is just so weak. 
No, that's not what Jesus is saying. The reason I can't curse a strawberry plant in my backyard is because I'm as faith is so weak. No, that's not. What Jesus is saying is this. We need to trust in God's ability for God to accomplish God's will. If it was God, it's the reason the reason Jesus' cursing of the fig tree worked is because it was God's will for the tree to be cursed and die as a symbol of Israel's judgment. So Jesus believed it, said it, and it happened. God directed the disciples to put a mountain in the ocean. All that is required of them is believing that God has the power to accomplish what God said he's going to accomplish. And there are no limits to what God's power can do, except that it's only going to do what he has set about to accomplish. The issue is God's will. It's God's will. Okay. You know what God's will is for you? To obey and become holy and to love Jesus. And he's got the power to do that. Just ask him. Just ask him. Father, we ask you. We come to you humbly, and we're asking. If we saw Nicodemus today in this conversation, you have the power to make new life. You have the power to keep making new life. You have the power for new life to make fruit by the power of the Spirit. You have the power and you have the desire, so we ask that you would do it. And that we would have that kind of faith, trusting you for what you have said you're going to do and believing you that you're actually going to do it and that you've got the power to do it. Make us a church that makes you accessible by proclaiming the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.